The following podcast has adult themes, sexual content, and strong language, mostly because I have a potty mouth. Hi, I'm Adam, and this is Where Is My Nigerian Prince? Each week I tell the tale of my search for love, the highs, the lows, the utter embarrassments, and the hopefully funny side of single life today. I also fully intend to rope in some friends to tell their stories along the way, and maybe, together, we can soothe the dating wounds of the entire world. Episode 4. I'm definitely not your dream prince. I will start with a little apology for the delay between episodes. Bad flu and some other issues mean this one-man show took a break. But I'm glad to be back and about to tell you a story that, to be honest, I'm a little afraid to tell. Why? Because I'm the bad guy in this one. There is no one else to blame except me. When I turned 30, I was living in China. I'd been there for six months and was teaching English. In so many ways, it was some of the best times of my life, meeting the most fun people and learning about just how small the world was. I mean, until you've been immersed in a truly foreign culture, you have no idea about humanity and how we work. I had gone to China to teach, to fulfill a dream of mine that I'd had since my first year in high school, where I met Mrs. Paul, the Japanese teacher. Loved every minute of her classes and decided one day I would love to teach English in Japan. As life goes, I changed schools and never did finish learning Japanese, so when the opportunity came to teach English in China, it was the nearest thing to that old dream, coming back to life. After six months, I was pretty deeply in culture shock, which is what happens when you move to another country. Even if it is English speaking, every move will result in culture shock of some degree or another. And how big that shock is when it happens and how you cope depends very much on factors like how big the change itself is, what you miss from home, the language, the culture, and your own personality. The phases of culture shock are as follows. The honeymoon phase, where everything is new and cool, your biggest problem every night is being bone tired because of the jet lag and constantly looking around and noticing everything with a sense of awe, a little bit like a meerkat. This is the phase where nothing gets in your way because you can do it, just like Bob the Builder, yes you can. This phase is summed up by my growing obsession with trying to find gay people. Because we exist everywhere, just underground if needs be, and in China, it was definitely underground. So what did I do? I noticed that the hairdressers were pretty stereotypically campy. So bugger it, I thought. I'm going to try and make some friends. This ultimately became one of my favourite memories where I would sit with the guys outside their shop, buy them a Coke, and I would teach them some English while they would teach me Chinese. I learned a few very important words this way, such as boyfriend and girlfriend. Anyway, the second phase is frustration, where you want to achieve things by yourself, because you're an adult, and you should be able to. But... Often what this is really about is being unable to recognize that to achieve a certain result requires a different approach. Take trying to get a Chinese SIM card for my mobile phone as an example. I went to the mobile shop a total of six times. 
each with more and more information that they asked for, like passports and proof that I had a job and all sorts of things. I was just getting angrier and angrier as each session went along until I lost control and started yelling and screaming at China Telecom and walked out saying, fucking bullshit assholes. (laughs) That led to me complaining about this at work, where one of the Chinese teachers said, let me deal with this. She made a phone call and 30 minutes later, a guy arrived with a SIM card for me. Feel like a dick. It's just the greatest example of learning to do things a different way. The third phrase is depression and feeling stuck. And that is where I was after six months. I just wanted out. Everything sucks. Poor me. Through luck, it was my birthday and I had planned to spend a week in Hong Kong. And that was the right choice. Because the English influence in Hong Kong seemed to make it feel like home. Just enough. Things worked the way I expected them to. There were some white faces around. The food was great. And dare I say it, I got laid. But after a few days in Hong Kong, I did start to notice something very strange. No one cared who I was. In Nanning, I was one of ten foreigners in a city of three million people. And I was the tallest and whitest and fattest of the foreigners, so I stood out like a sore thumb. And everyone knew of me. I was famous in my little city, signing autographs, everyone saying hello and smiling at me. I was Britney Spears at the beginning of her career, and I could do no wrong. But in Hong Kong, I was Britney Spears in rehab for famous people. Just another entitled prick who no one cared about. So at the end of my seven days, my depression was cured and I wanted to go home, back to Nanning, back to being a pop star. The fourth phase is acceptance, and that is where I was, except that I still hadn't found any of those homosexuals. I mean, they were hiding, I'm sure. I'd had a great time with my hairdresser friends, but it had never gotten past friendship and I had learnt my Western assumptions of how a gay man acts did not translate that well in China. Finally, I carefully asked for help. I had a female Chinese friend who I could trust with the truth. She was progressive and understood that I had to keep my sexuality on the down low. Otherwise, I'd lose my job and be on the next flight home. She introduced me to a chat room where gay men met, and slowly I made some friends. It was here that I met Lee. Lee was about my age, with a body of an Adonis, but a face that, um, well, let's just say he was best suited to welding because he would wear that protective mask all day. Lee was not quick into bed like most gay men, including me, and we took some time to get to know each other. He was a fit sportsman who loved playing soccer, and I was always up for a laugh, so we'd often meet up with some teachers and students to play the local soccer grounds. I, being big and less fit, would tend to take a more aggressive yet friendly sort of rugby approach to soccer, which would involve clear penalties and pushing people out of the way before they could steal the ball off me, for example. It was a great laugh, and we all bonded pretty well. Interestingly, the judgments about his face softened as I got to know him and I realised he was a good, honest and sweet guy who wouldn't hurt a fly. Which, if I'm honest, was a bit rare in China, where corruption, in the Western terms at least, was pretty rife. I would later come to realise that I was much better off trusting the poor 
because the rich generally got there through some nefarious means. A mixture of horniness, loneliness and desperation drove me on with my relationship with Lee and we found ourselves spending a great deal of time together. Though I knew I wasn't in love, I settled for him because he was in love with me and I could trust him. As I said earlier, I was the bad guy in this one. Lee eventually invited me into his home and we lived together for the last six months of my two years in China. And during that time, I would tell him basically anything he wanted to hear in order to keep things moving forward and for my convenience and my comfort. I was a selfish prick. Getting the sex and intimacy I wanted whilst feeding him bullshit about being together forever, which I never intended to do because I knew my time in China was coming to an end and I didn't want to deal with the truth and I didn't love him. Meanwhile, I did try to pay off my guilt though by buying him a fridge and paying the rent and utilities. I got him a new computer and a DVD player and I left him many of my DVDs I purchased over my time in China. Somehow, I mitigated in my own mind the heartbreak I was about to bestow upon Lee with feeling that at least he came out of it with a good deal. I think the shame of how I feel about this means I have electively forgotten some details, including how I exactly I got him to think I was coming back. That as I got into the taxi that day with my all my stuff bound for the airport, that I would be back. But he knew in some way because I saw the tears in his eyes and I cried my own, not for my broken heart, but for realising that given the right circumstances, I was just as big of an asshole as any other lover I had ever had. After struggling my way back to New Zealand through multiple airlines and with over-the-limit baggage, I found myself sitting in my parents' house, pulling apart my guilt and wondering how I, how I got myself into this situation. Finally, it drove me to email Lee and tell him the truth and apologise to him. A weak move. A low move, but the only one I could make by that point. China had been the most amazing time in my life, but I admired it with this behaviour. So I tucked it away, covered it with dirt, and buried it under lies. A skill I had learnt oh so long ago, and a truth that I would not deal with until many years later, when situations would finally uncover what was behind it all. But that's a story for another time. This has been a production of Adam Wright. I hold the copyright to this material. A huge thanks to my talented niece Grace Beard for turning my poorly written music into the theme song of Where's My Nigerian Prince? Next week I'll be back with episode 5 where I will jump back to Sydney and we will learn about my HIV positive prince. Meanwhile, please send any feedback or comments or requests to Where's My Nigerian Prince on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Gmail and at Where'sMyNigerianPrince.com Oh, and please spread the word and don't forget the most important thing. Love yourself.